story. Now, the Bible's full of interesting stories. This is, I think it's not a stretch to say, this is a bizarre story. Uh, but it's a story that I want you to read, and I'm, I'm going to take this story seriously. I, I believe it, it's a serious story. But it, it, it's not going to strike you immediately as one of those kind of stories that you hear in the Bible that you think, yeah, I want to ponder that. This is probably one of those stories where you just kind of read over it and think, what was that? And you move on. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. And, and as Rick said, we're talking about spiritual warfare, or as we're calling it, asymmetric warfare. And in Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 13. And if you need a Bible, uh, there's paperback Bibles that look like this under the chair seat in front of you. And it's page 772, if you're sorting away in there. Here's how it starts. It says, Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who had believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. That sounds like a lot. I don't know how much a drachma is, but it, it sounded like a lot. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power or, or influence. Now, asymmetrical warfare is, is war between uh, two parties, two belligerents, whose relative military power differs. So uh, David and Goliath, right? And, 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 and not just their power, but their tactics, because your power determines your tactics. So asymmetric warfare, which goes on all, all the time in the world, literally, it, I think is an apt uh, analogy to spiritual warfare, because we see in this story human beings encountering real supernatural spiritual evil, and essentially they get their butt kicked. Can I say that in church? Okay, I just did. There you go. I didn't use that other word that I sometimes use. So and some of you are nodding. All right, John, growth is possible. This is a picture of something that we go, I don't have any frame of reference for that. Now, a lot of people, even serious followers of Jesus go, I've never seen anything like that, so I think that's just superstition and myth. And, you know, maybe you're part of that, that group of people. Uh, I will tell you that Jesus took real supernatural evil seriously and taught about it and dealt with it. And, and I've seen it myself. I've seen people do things like this. I've experienced it. I've seen this happen in public places. I was once praying for a neighbor who began to manifest, uh, make uh, 
unusual noises and faces and voices and run down the street and we kind of followed her down the street and she started taking her clothes off in public and all of our neighbors started gathering around as we're trying to like, and we realized, oh, this is a demonic thing. We started praying the way these men did and voices and things. And she started clawing the bark off of trees with her fingernails and her fingernails didn't break or bleed. I mean, bark, just this little five foot, 90 pound girl. When the police came and the ambulances came, she was throwing them around like they were rag dolls. I've seen this. I've watched people talk in languages that they didn't learn, that were real human languages, Latin, Greek, Spanish. This stuff is real. You may not have encountered it yourself, but let me tell you something. This is sort of the most dramatic manifestation of supernatural evil. But this is, even though this story sounds kind of wild, this is not the most dangerous kind of supernatural evil. The kind of supernatural evil that's the most dangerous is the supernatural evil that works through systems in a very, very subtle way. And like I said last week, the truth is you, can, you, could, you can't see the evil. You saw this person in this story, but you can see the evil by the way that they acted. And that's the, the deal with spiritual warfare is uh, sometimes because of our biases, and our, our own moral failings, or our, you know, our ignorance, just to be honest, even though Americans, we sort of pride ourselves as being, well, we're, we're intelligent people. You know, we, we invest a lot of money in education, and, and we read, and we have the internet, and you know, we're just engulfed in information. But that doesn't mean that we're wise. It doesn't mean we necessarily have understanding. And so... These kinds of stories, they weren't just tossed into these letters that were written, these documents, to sensationalize something. They had real value as uh, opportunities for moral instruction, moral and spiritual instruction. And so this story uh, can teach us something about just this whole subject of spiritual warfare. And there, there, there's lots of lessons there. I'm just going to talk about two Two points, and then we're going to make a little application. Here's the first point. If you go back to this story, let me go back to it here. It says, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. Now, the verse, a couple of verses before it, I want to go back and read something to you. In verse 11, it says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him, so that uh, even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. So what it's saying is, there was this miraculous outpouring of God's power through Paul. And Paul, at this point, it, it talked about handkerchiefs and aprons. These were words that described uh, part of Paul's trade. Paul was a tent maker. So as he traveled around and shared the gospel, he made his living by making tents. So it was a part-time living because he got some support as a missionary, but a lot of what he did was, was supported by his own hard work. 
And so, you know, he had, he would wear a do-rag, right? He had handkerchiefs and aprons. And the power of God was so present in the communication of the gospel and in the, in the, the churches that in Ephesus, as we, I mentioned last week, historians will tell you that Ephesus was a center of, of occult belief and practices. And, and in, it, in it, people were, it wasn't like uh, made-up stuff. There, were, there, were, there was real power that people tapped into, and the Ephesians really respected that kind of stuff. And, but the thing was, they were kind of trying to use charms and, you know, and, and uh, things like that uh, as a kind of spiritual technology to defeat evil power that, that they experienced troubling them. And Paul came along, and the power that came through the name of Jesus was so beyond anything that they'd seen that it was like Paul would hear a story, essentially, and say, here, take my do-rag and and touch them with it, and they'll be healed. The, the demons will leave them. So th- this was like a level of power they'd never seen before. So, entre- I mean, uh, enterprising, exorcistic entrepreneurs were going around and trying, because they would be paid for helping someone become free of demonic oppression. So these Jewish exorcists thought, hey, we hear about this person Jesus, we don't think he, you know, well, we, don't, we think he was a false teacher, but for some reason, his name has some power, that's what the Christians are using, and they're casting out demons right and left, let's, like, employ it in our trade. And so the story we heard was when they tried that, the demons didn't leave, in fact, the demons didn't just not leave, the demons turned on them, this one man with you know, who knows how many evil spirits, just beat them up. And it was a humiliating experience, and the story just spread, and it reinforced the idea that Jesus was unique. There was something about who Jesus was that went beyond anything they'd ever, in terms of spiritual power, they'd ever experienced before. And it's still that way. It's still that way. So, the problem was religion is worthless against spiritual evil. It's worthless. And you can look at this story. It says these were Jewish people. They were, I'm, I'm sure, and this is a you know, distinction you often have to make. Because someone, like I'm a Christian and I believe that God's revealed himself to Jesus Christ, that that's how we have a relationship with him. And the fact that someone might reject that, and I think they're wrong in their rejection, doesn't mean that that person can't be a moral person and maybe, in many ways, be more moral than me. Because my morality is not the foundation of my faith. My faith says that if I believe in Jesus, I will become a moral person, a more moral person than I've been, in God's eyes and in people's eyes, but it doesn't mean that there aren't people who might not be more honest than I am, more generous than I am, more respectful than I am, and on and on and on. So, but it says, uh, my faith says, that with respect to the gospel, people have truth in every religion. 
and every faith that's out there. But their story can only take them so far. Their narrative, their spiritual narrative, has value. And many of the, 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 the spiritual narratives that we see around the world today, they have endured for centuries and millennia because they have some value to them. But they can only get you so far, just like what the Jewish people had could only get them so far in terms of a real relationship with God. And then it, there was a, an end of the road to it. There was a limit. And so these seven sons of Sceva, they got as far as they could, and they thought, hey, let's just use this name. Again, like I said, like spiritual technology. And I think in our culture today, since we grasp technology, we're all for just using technology because it will advance our, you know, our, our company's goals in some way, our personal goals. And that's what they were doing. The, the problem is they didn't have a relationship with God through this person of Jesus like the Christians did, like Paul did. And Paul had been a Jew, but he believed once you know, he came to terms with the fact that his faith was lacking, that his faith, the fulfillment of his faith was through Jesus, a Jew. He had to come to terms with that, and in a very, he did in a very dramatic way. If you, if you read earlier in this, this letter, uh, the book of Acts, he had to go from a person who was spiritually proud and self-righteous to a person who recognized that he had just as many flaws and he had failed just as much as all the non-religious people that he looked down at. And he had to see that only Jesus could be the way, the bridge between him and God. And he, when he embraced Jesus and began to follow him, his life changed. And that was his message everywhere he went. That's the message of the gospel. And so this, these, these Jewish people, they, they heard the gospel, but they rejected it. And they were holding on to their religion and thinking, we don't know. We haven't figured out how the name of Jesus can have this kind of power, but it doesn't matter. We don't want. We just want to use it for our agenda. And they found out you can't use Jesus. He's not spiritual technology. His name is not just a tool. And here's the thing. Remember how we said last week that this whole thing about spiritual warfare, and we're going to go back to that passage next week in, in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Paul said three things in there. He said, in spiritual warfare, you need power. We talked about that last week. He said, you need armor. We're going to touch on it this week. And then you need to make a stand. Well, what these Jewish exorcists were trying to do was to access power. They thought they had armor, and they were taking their stand. And it utterly failed. Because the power and the armor are a person. They're not technology. They're not technique. They're not formulas. And let me tell you, when you're trapped in religion, you can't see the difference. Something has to open your eyes to see this isn't working. Now, is it true because the way God wired everything, there's this idea that if we sow, we will reap. It's, it's a scientifically validated fact. 
And so if we sow certain things, good things, we're going to reap certain good things. That won't necessarily change our standing with God, but we can see the result that certain ways of life work better than other ways of life. But it can confuse you to think, well, God approves of my whole life because I figured certain things out. And that's the trap that they fell into. And so Jesus came along with the message of the gospel and fulfillment of all that the Old Testament said. And then he handed that off to everybody, and it's gotten to us, and we're, we're now trying to pass it on. And what he basically said was that, that, that to be what we call a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus. These men were followers of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus is you go from unbelief and living life on your own terms to following Jesus in every area of your life. And for most people, there's some kind of a threshold moment where, like they say, when two, like in, in warfare, when one army finally begins to assert itself and defeat another army, and the other army wants to give up, usually there's some kind of a formal ceremony, but what the, the, the triumphant army, as they approach the army they've defeated, they say, if you want to surrender, you have to lay down your arms. You have to stop fighting. That's a really hard thing to do, but it's a very, very perfect analogy of what it is when you become a follower of Jesus, you say, I'm going to lay down my arms and I'm going to stop fighting God. I'm going to stop living life on my own terms, which is in effect fighting God. Because we're saying we're wiser than God and we want better things than God wants for us, which is not true. So these guys didn't do that. They didn't have Jesus, because as we've been reading through the book of Ephesians the last couple of months, and we got to this passage in 6, a couple of chapters back, one of the things that Paul said was, put off your old way of life and put on the new man, Jesus, and a, and a life that's like him. And so he's saying, put off. So when you begin to be a follower of Jesus, you put off your old way of life. That doesn't mean every part of your old way of life, but at the center of your life where you're in charge, you're saying, I want Jesus to be in charge of my life from now on. And I want him to actually rescue me from all the consequences that came from me being in charge of my own life. And when, when, when that happens, at the very core of our being, we become a different person. The rest of our life starts getting sorted out. Changes start coming, but like I like to say, spiritual change doesn't come on a bullet train. It comes on a wagon train. It doesn't come as fast as a lot of times we'd like it to come, but it will come. Because if Jesus is in charge, he will give you, if, if you keep following him, he will give you the power to change. He is our power, and he is our armor in spiritual warfare. And, and if you remember when we were reading last week, we read that passage, he says, put on the full armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sandals of the gospel of peace, the sword of the Spirit, and the shield of faith. Those are terms and armor that is mentioned in the Old Testament and it was, it was part of, you know, came, Paul was drawing from the armor that a Roman soldier would wear. But 
we try to make a lot out of the connection between the belt of truth. All those words were things that Paul had already mentioned earlier in his letter. And, and, and why they were important was because they, they were connected to Jesus. And I don't mean it's not important to sort of expound on what the shield of faith might be and the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation, but ultimately it's about putting on the person of Jesus in your life. If you don't have him on, you're vulnerable. Now, I'll get to that in a second. You saw it here. You saw it in the story. So, the first mistake they made was they believed that religion offered you protection and spiritual warfare. It doesn't. The second mistake, and this, the, the mistake we make, I think this is probably if you're a believer here. If you're not a believer, you might be making that first mistake. You probably have. The second mistake is in that second paragraph here where it says, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks, they were all seized with fear or amazement. It wasn't fear like cowering, afraid fear. It was like, oh, you know, who? God revealed himself, and there was this sense of respect that came. And it says, uh, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. Did it? That the revelation of, of, of God's power, the name of Jesus, but more importantly, the revel, it was the re, was specific revelation that religion was powerless and that their, their unrighteousness, the fact that they weren't clothing themselves with Jesus, made them vulnerable. And they suddenly came forward and openly confessed, here's where we've compromised. And here's, here's the lesson from it. We become vulnerable to the devil when we begin to disobey God. When, when we make obedience an option in our lives, we make ourselves vulnerable to the enemy. And, you know, earlier in this letter, here's what Paul said and when he was talking about the life that you're supposed to live once you're a follower of Jesus. He says, in your anger, don't sin. In other words, there is a time to be angry. And it's not unrighteous. But what he says is, there is sinful anger, so don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, and don't give the devil a foothold or an opportunity. Now, this is, a, this is uncomfortable ground to go with. And I, I hope I can go here with you in a way that doesn't lead you to condemnation and false accusation and shame, but helps you to look at your life with, you know, a, a healthy perspective and with the help of the Holy Spirit, okay? Not just you sort of rummaging around inside your life. But what Paul says here is if we, and, and the grammar, as I mentioned this to you before, and I'm not a Greek grammarian, but, I, you know, I've been taught well enough to understand and respect people who can speak Greek grammar. The way that, that chapter 4 and 5 are written is Paul is talking about truth. Let's see. He talks about truth. He talks about uh, don't, don't uh, nurture bitterness. Don't steal. Work hard. Uh, don't, uh, don't be cruel. Don't uh, abuse substances. Don't commit sexual immorality. Uh, don't uh, uh, spouses don't abuse each other, you know, don't abuse your kids, don't, don't, all these moral imperatives, which are not 
exhaustive of all that God has for us. But Paul was writing to a particular group of people in a particular place, and he was addressing general things, but also things that were probably somewhat unique to their culture and, and areas where they might need to grow. But what he was saying was, if you struggle with being honest on a consistent basis, which is a pretty broad problem, if you don't seek with God's help to curb that and to begin to be honest, even when it costs you, you're opening the door for the enemy in your life. If you make lying a pattern of behavior, the enemy has an opportunity in your life and you'll be vulnerable. And, and here's the thing. As we saw in this story, as you see all the way through the Gospels, he has power to affect us financially, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, relationally, physically. There's no dimension of your life that the enemy can't touch. There's just so many troubles that come, and we're ignorant of them because the power of evil is so subtle, and it's such a strong force. I've felt it in my own life. When, when Kathy and I are in an argument, there are times where we're in an argument over something. You know how you have arguments? And then you have these arguments that go nuclear. And it's like, there's a little flame here, and someone just comes and just pours gasoline on it. The room is consumed, you know? And we've never thrown anything, but we could have. We were at the point of it. We don't have, we, you know, we didn't have any loaded guns around. They might have been used. You ever had those moments? You just lose your mind? Now, I mean it's possible for someone to get you to that point. With, they, they can provoke you. But my wife doesn't want to do that to me. And I don't want to do that to her. I did not set out to, to, to find the last nerve that, that was left and just, you know, attack it, and, and, and vice versa. There was a spiritual thing that we experienced where the enemy came and sought to destroy us. Because, you know, there's things you get mad about, and then you have fights, and then you say things in the middle of the fights, and then the real damage is done, isn't it? I mean, there was damage before, and then you say things where real damage is done. Damage is even harder to repair. You're, you're sitting in this room, and your money is under attack by the enemy because you've made obedience an option in your life. You've struggled at work. You've struggled in relationships. You've struggled in your relationship with God. Now, Remember what I said, when you become a follower of Jesus, your identity, the core of who you are, is changed. And it wasn't a result of what you did. So you don't change that. But this, this thing where we're vulnerable is about degrees of vulnerability. It's not either or. Don't hear me saying, if you sin, you're not a Christian anymore. Because that's just not a biblical teaching. It's not. We shouldn't. We do. We shouldn't. When we do, we should learn from it and change. But when we do, there's consequences, and natural consequences, 
But there's also spiritual consequences, is if we continue to do it without really wrestling with it and repenting, we give the enemy an opportunity. And the Greek word is a very, and I've said this many times, so some of you don't, I apologize for for, uh, belaboring this, but the Greek word means a room, a room in your house. So imagine your home. It's furnished with all these things. And someone just decides to come into your room and party in there. And they party hard. And they smear feces on the walls. And they rip the carpet up and burn it. And they break holes in the wall. They break the windows in that room. And they just destroy the room. And the rest of your house is good. And so you just think, well, you know, I'm just going to put some plywood over that over the opening to that room. But they're in. They're like termites. And it starts spreading in your life. See, the armor comes from Jesus to resist this. But to put Jesus on is you put him on. You say yes. It doesn't mean you say yes perfectly. It just means you take this seriously and say, I can't deceive myself into thinking There's no cost to me choosing to just make obedience to God optional. There's some cost. Because good is important. Good is life-changing. Good has an impact. And so its opposite is also life-changing and impacting. And the bad thing about this is, when you become vulnerable, you can become captive. I'm going to give you two just before we, 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 we pray. I'm going to give you two things, that, two examples of how easy it is for once we make obedience optional. And we choose, we pick and choose what part of what Jesus taught and what his word teaches that we're going to choose to obey. When we do that, It's very dangerous. It's super dangerous. Don't do this at home, boys and girls, as they say. In the South, because the whole issue of race is a big part of it. And, and, you know, I don't apologize for talking about this. It's, It's a part of our national conversation right now. But there were really, in many ways, godly loving people who lived in the South who bought into the lie and the false teaching that their neighbors who were a different skin color were less human. And they could treat them poorly. And it didn't matter that God had made them less. Whatever they were, they were less. And this whole thing became... and now. It's not, it's not the invention of America. This happens all over the world. Throughout all of human history, the sad story of racism is told in every country. And the sad thing is it's repeated. Because it is a demonic thing. It is one of the most destructive things that there is. And it gets empowered when it gets into systems and in institutions. 
and it gets accepted by people, and it's underground then, and we don't see it. And, and one of the men you know, I admire greatly, Billy Graham, was very critical of Martin Luther King's whole campaign for civil rights. I mean, he publicly said they need to stop doing this civil disobedience. He didn't support the 1964 and 65 civil rights legislation. He didn't. Billy Graham. This is a godly man. But he lived in the South. And the systemic nature of racism blinded him. And think... Now, he is heartbroken now over how foolish he was. But he rejected a part of the Bible he preached to hold on to that viewpoint. Do you see that? Do you think you're a better person than Billy Graham? I mean, honestly. Do you think you're, you're a more sincere, dedicated, fervent faithful person than Billy Graham is. I don't think there's anybody in this room that is. He's not a perfect guy, but I think he's someone to be admired. But that is not one of the highlights of his life. And it was because he was disobedient in one area, and it created vulnerability. And then he could live in a community and go into restaurants where blacks couldn't be served. And he could eat there and accept that. When, when fellow believers, and Martin Luther King was a friend of Billy Graham's. They were close. But Billy Graham was critical of him. Because he said, you're stirring up trouble. They were not stirring up trouble. They were taking non-violent steps to expose the evil that everyone was accepting. And that was called, you were called a troublemaker when you did that. That's how deceived we can get. Now we look back at that now and go, oh my gosh, wow. I'm sure glad we'll never do that again. We're, we're blind to all kinds of things. All kinds of things that are wrong. It starts when we give the devil an opportunity. And it doesn't require us to be perfect. Now, I'm going I'm to say one more that's way more controversial than that example. How many of you have ever seen the statue of, of Michelangelo's statue of David? Not, you know, in person, but you've seen pictures of it. You know, it's, it's a picture of David. He's got the stones in his hand, and he's kind of standing like this, and, and he's got his sling, and he's naked. And it is, it is a magnificent piece of art. People who see it in uh, Italy say, people often say they come in and they're like, oh, they can't, it's so, it's, it's almost 14 feet tall. Actually, it's on a pedestal, so it's even tall, it's 17 feet. And they are just struck by it, like, oh my gosh, I've never seen anything this beautiful. But let me tell you something. Do you know what, why it's so beautiful? It's a picture of a human being. The image of God is right there. And the people are kind of awkward. The, you know, the nudity, it's amazing. There are people who look at it and they start crying. 
we're, we're reacting to the image of God. Now, it's beautiful art, but art reflects reality. We, we can lose sight of that. And you know, there's been outrage because there's actually been several times where people have attacked that statue. Like a man a few years back, maybe 20 or so years ago, took a hammer and started you know, beating on it and, and chipping off one of the toes. People have thrown benches, like wooden benches that they sit around it at the statue. Uh, someone threw something at the statue and broke off the left arm and three, three pieces of the left arm. So they've had to restore it. And people go, that's so awful. Let me tell you something. We have gotten to the place in our culture now where human beings who are confused about their sexual identity, we endorse them mutilating their body. And we think it's okay. Do you, do you, we used to say, like it's still called gender dysphoria. It's a, it's a psychological malady. But we're moving towards saying, no, it's not. You should be able to choose whatever your gender is and do whatever you want with your body. But we were appalled by the defacing of a statue, but we will endorse the mutilation of a teenager's body or an adult's body because they're confused. This is tragic. But we don't get there in these huge, bold steps. We just get there incrementally because we make ourselves vulnerable, because we reject the idea of a Judeo-Christian ethic about humanity and life, just like at the root of racism and this confusion about sexuality, it's confusion about the human person and the dignity of every person. And it's hard for a person like I to, to espouse that. I'm called a hate monger. Anybody who would espouse, I mean, uh, the, the, uh, on the transgender issue, not the racial issue, I, I don't think anybody's confused that I'm not a racist. But if you hold these other views, and they, you're considered hateful, but they both issue from the same fundamentals. All people are made in God's image, no matter how weak, defective they might be in someone's definition of humanity. They're they're awesome and amazing and wonderful, and we need to love them and protect them and care for them. Now, it doesn't get into all the the issues of transgenderism, but I hope you see my point. So here's the thing I want to ask you to do. You know, if you think religion offers you any help in spiritual war, I hope you can see at least, you know, your, your conviction that that might help you is hopefully at least a little undermined here. And if you want to see your life flourish, you've got to follow Jesus. And maybe this is just another little point that nudges you further towards that. But here among us, most of us are believers that are sitting here, we need to repent because that's the response. We need to repent of making obedience optional. And then start somewhere in your life. Like, it is almost a brand of Christianity in America that nobody would say, this is my brand. But obedience optional Christianity is the most successful brand in America. 
And that's why we're so spiritually messed up. That's why we're so messed up in these areas of our life, because the enemy, because of that vulnerability that comes from our, our disobedience, the enemy has preyed on us and compromised us in a thousand ways. And we've all suffered for it. And I want to ask you today, would you just, in your heart, just say, I want to reject that. And with God's help, I want to begin to follow Jesus faithfully. doesn't mean perfectly. It just means faithfully. But then I want to give you a chance to actually put that into practice just for a second. I want to pray. And we're going to take communion. This is how we're going to lead up into communion. In Psalm 139, or I'm sorry, Psalm 19, it's a, a beautiful reflection on God speaking to us and the ways that he speaks through creation and then through his word. So it starts off and it says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament is handiwork that he speaks night and day. What it says is, the first Bible is creation. Then Paul reflects about the law of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. He reflects the psalm as a song where they sang to God's glory about how he reveals himself through creation, then how he reveals himself through his word that he speaks to us. And then at the end of it, it's a beautiful thing. He says that he, he delights in a love of, of hearing from God and responding him, responding to him and obediently. And, and then at the, at the end, it says, by keeping them, in verse 11, <clears throat> God's word, is your servant warned? In keeping them, there is great reward. And this, this is the reflection I want to take you through just to close. Who can discern his errors? This is what David says. So in light of God revealing himself and how he wants us to live and how easily it is for us to hear and not obey and in all the trouble that that causes, he says, who can discern his errors? That's not easy to do. He says, forgive my hidden faults. There's in your life today hidden faults. And he says, keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. And willful sins is willful disobedience. It's it's making obedience optional. Then I'll be blameless, innocent, a great transgression. And then he prays his prayer that that actually is a song that we sing. We're not going to sing it today, but may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And he uses two titles of God. God is our rock. God is our support and our strength and our foundation. And then God, our redeemer, the one that redeems us from slavery and from oppression and from things that are more powerful than us that, that afflict us. And that many times we get into the trouble uh, because we're participated in evil foolishly. So I want you to ask the Lord for a moment, where in your life are you guilty of disobeying him in the way we've described? Where you just have said, I'm just going to do my own thing. And maybe there's whole swaths of your life where you're trying to pursue the Lord and please him. But over here you just go, Ah, this is my deal. I want to ask you to ask the Lord, where, where and, and there might be less swaths of your life where you're doing well than you think. What 
posture we're trying to, to, to cultivate is that posture of, of the psalmist who said, who can discern his errors? That's, that's not a rhetorical question. It's, it's one of those questions that, to suggest to you that without God's help, you can't see your errors and faults. And so it's really his job, not yours. And that's, that's, I'll tell you, that's weight off my shoulders. Because he's the shepherd and I'm following him. And I try not to spend any time rummaging around in the basement of my heart. I want to keep my eyes on him. And, but I, every once in a while, I've got to stop and say, Oh, Lord, who can discern his heirs? It's likely I'm whack somewhere in my life. Would you speak to me? Where have I missed you? Where am I missing it? Where do I have a blind spot like one of my heroes, Billy Graham, had? And then let him speak to you and then own it. And then I think you need to craft your own plan to address it. But you can't dismiss it. You've got to say today, okay, Lord, I'm game. With your help, I'm going to get on the wagon train here and begin to grow and make progress in this area of my life because you've spoken to me. So why don't you stand with me? And the folks who are going to pass out the elements, why don't you come up and get the communion elements, the Lord's body and His blood. This is where the life is. So when you repent, we're not just a group of moralists who are trying to to be upright, moral people. We're trying to say, Lord, when we live this way, we move away from you. And we, when we move away from you, we move away from life. And when we repent, we want to turn back towards you. And we want to engage you. And bread and wine were symbols of, of meals, covenant meals, where people would make these covenant relationships with others and with God and I want to ask you just for a second to close your eyes I'm going to pray and I'm going to give you a minute just to reflect and as the Lord maybe the Lord's already spoken to you I want you to confess to the Lord and to one other person today your area of disobedience and then as you do and as Adam plays I want you to come receive communion. And as you receive it, you're coming not just to go through some kind of an empty ceremony. You're coming to meet Jesus. You're coming to experience Him personally, moving towards you. Because He's been moving towards you. He's come towards you in these elements. And He said, my spirit's going to encounter you today if you'll just turn away from whatever it is you've been running after and turn towards me, I'm going to meet you. And then tell someone else about that today. Someone you trust. Just tell them, here's what God spoke to me about. Lord, uh, we want to give just